From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, this is the Eurovision News Podcast. Today we're joined by David Caswell, who among other things is an expert in artificial intelligence. David was previously an executive product manager at BBC News and BBC News Labs and is now the founder of Storyflow, a company that helps news and media organizations use advanced AI technologies to improve their products and workflow. David, welcome. Thank you. Today, we're going to talk about AI, and it's a massive topic. In particular, PSM seems to be focused on the generative side of AI. How can we define generative AI, and what are some of the applications of using it for news production? I think, um, you know, looking back a little bit on the the history of, of this sort of era of machine learning that we've really been in for about a decade or so, um, most of that was a around a kind of AI that was more interpretive. It was more about um, understanding and, and categorizing things like images or you know other criteria, automated tagging, that, this kind of thing. Very narrow form of AI. Uh, models were built specifically for specific uh, purposes, you know, machine translation, transcription, and so on. And that was pretty well advanced and you know, kind of well developed. We were using this. This was kind of moving into newsrooms and so on. Um, and then in around 2017, there was a key paper from Google, and there's this new generation uh, from generative AI that's developed since then, uh, which is a slightly different interpretation of how AI works. It essentially reverses the direction uh, that these models um, operate in. And that really got started in about 2019. Uh, most large news organizations were kind of playing with these tools from about then in, in uh, different levels. But nobody really paid attention, I think, until ChatGPT launched. I think where most people first got their visceral taste of what was to come. So the, yeah, that's that's kind of a history that we've we've kind of gone through there. So this isn't really a surprise, I think, for people who've been working in the. I think the pace and the rate of improvement is a surprise, but the basic functionality and the fact that it was going to happen, I think, has been apparent for at least a few years. And why is that? LLMs have taken on this popularity. Is it because of their ease of use and the interface? Yeah, I, th- I think um, th- there was a step that was made, not just the chat interface for ChatGPT, but also a technique that, in this case, OpenAI applied this technique that they call uh, reinforcement learning from human feedback that made the interface or the interaction with the, the, um, the model much more accessible. Whereas prior to that, you had to formulate prompts in a different way and you know, it was it was it was a slightly more complex um, experience. So I, I think the the Chat GPT step made it less technical and more familiar, you know, familiar to people and uh, and accessible. And as newsrooms are beginning to use it, uh, what are some of these applications that you're seeing? Well, there's there's quite a range. I've been working with quite a few newsrooms on this. Some of them at different levels of their kind of their journey, I guess. And there's kind of categories that are emerging. I think. You know, most newsrooms look at things like summarization, rewriting, back-end tasks like tagging. Uh, These are very good uh, automated taggers, copy editing, uh, these kind of tasks. I'm starting to see more newsrooms explore these tools for use in news gathering. So this is applications where the models read and analyze and synthesize and understand large quantities of natural language text. And then that that it sort of expands the ability of editorial staff to 
know, to monitor and report on whatever it is the, the subject matter is. So that, that that's a new category or a more recent category. And then I think there's a there's a, another category of of use around moving content across uh, across media, across forms of media. So most often from text uh, into you know images or audio or video, uh, but also um, uh, you know between video to video, for example, the EBU has done this with uh, with its European Perspective product. Newsrooms are still exploring the very very early stages of what's possible here, but those are those are some early categories that are popping out. I think there's a lot of fear around AI at the moment as well. Uh, I heard a quote today that said, AI is not going to replace your job. Your job is going to be replaced by someone who knows how to use AI. Do you have any suggestions for newsrooms on how they can stay in front of this emergent technology? Well, I think on the jobs front, like looking at it as an individual uh, who might be feeling threatened about this, you know, I, I think jobs are probably not the unit to look at. I think tasks are the unit to look at. And, and so the, the question then is what tasks can be can be either – and it's not just automation. So, so you know, looking at tasks in terms of automation, absolutely. But, but also, you know, what new tasks can you do that add value to the organization that you might not have been able to do before these tools came along, right? For example, you know, dramatic reversioning of articles – for different audiences was not really that feasible for a lot of newsrooms, but now it is because of these tools. So looking at tasks in terms of tasks that you already do that can be automated and possibly new tasks that, that you might be able to do now that you have this, this extra power. And then, you know, how, how do those tasks, you know, how do those combine into, into jobs, into teams, into, you know, into organizations? I, I think that's, you know, that's a challenge that, we're all going through. But I, I don't think it's, except in some unusual cases, you know, I don't think these tools are going to, are going to primarily be used just to carry on the, st the status quo with less people. I, I think that would be a dead end and very obviously a dead end for most news organizations because the competitive environment is going to change or is changing uh, so quickly be because of these tools. So it'll be more of a, an adaption to a to a new, you know, a new set of products, a new set of workflows, a new set of competitive strategies, rather than we're just going to do what we're doing, except we're going to do it with less people because we have machines. Just to bring it back a little bit, uh, I've heard some notable programmers who are in a totally different space, but say that they've sometimes up to five to 10 times their output yep. with the use of AI. Yeah, I, I, I do some coding as well, and I would agree with that. It is it is an absolute miracle as far as coding assistance. And so in order to stay competitive, newsrooms shouldn't whittle away their staff and just have them be more productive, but need to explore other opportunities for, um, for producing. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you could very much see in newsrooms um, a gap emerging between people and teams and maybe even, you know, department level functions or desks, for example, um, between those that sort of adopt and embrace and really sort of engage with these tools and the productivity that that produces, a, a gap between those kind of teams and teams that that just continue on and do what they're doing now. You know, and, and, and I think that's the, the requirement here on all of us is to recognize what's happening engage with it in, in a way that makes sense for the work that we do and then use it productively to move the work that we do forward. I, I, and I think when people do that, it's all upside or it's mostly upside. 
but I don't think the option of just ignoring it, I don't think that's really an option that's going to last for long. There will be some jobs that are just not automatable, maybe quite a few, but in most cases, you know, using the tools that are available is going to be increasingly required. Can we circle back a little bit on what the tools actually are? We spoke uh, briefly about LLMs. Is there any other programs or, or projects of note that we should discuss? Lots and lots and lots. Um, you know, LLMs are are by far the most important here. And it's not just because um, like news organizations work so much with language. It's also because they're essentially an interface into many things. I mean, they just make, um, you know, when you, when you interface with a, um, uh, a text to image model, for example, you know, mid journey or Dolly two or one of these models, you know, the language part of that is, is, is how you interface. So I think text prompts, and, and um, you know, control of, of AI through, through language, that's a very big thing. I've even seen papers um, around using large language models to control things like heating and ventilation and air conditioning systems in buildings, which seems like a very, very distant use for a language model. But, but you know, the nature of these models is such that they have that extreme degree of flexibility. Uh, so, yeah, I think language models are the main event here. But there are other models. You know, these models that I mentioned earlier on, you know, these narrow models that have kind of, you know, developed in this last decade as we've moved into the machine learning era, um, you know, they're all much better now. So, so things that have been around for a while, you know, automated transcription, um, machine translation, synthetic voices, you know, these kind of things are dramatically better now uh, than they were even a few years ago. So, for example, OpenAI they have a, a transcription tool called Whisper, and and Whisper is of a of an order of magnitude in its quality that 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 is you know far far in advance of even the best automated transcription two or three years ago. It it can transcribe better than most or any human. I mean, it really is uncanny what it can do. So what that does is that essentially opens up this whole area, this whole realm of of audio and video. Uh, natural language to the language model, right? So you now you're starting to see a, you know, two different models used together to do to, to do new things. You're seeing the same visually. These models, uh, GPT-4 is a good example, are increasingly multimodal. So so they they are trained or combined, for example, an image element with the language element. Um, this hasn't been released. This multimodal functionality hasn't been released in GPT-4 yet, but it is. It is there, and that that lets you do things like describe, or lets the machine describe scenes in images. I mean, this this is also the case for for video, although the GPT-4 model doesn't have video. But models where you you provide the model with, say, a 30-minute video, and have the model summarize not just the language in the video, but the descriptive elements and the the scenes and all that. Those kind of of functions are really, really close. In fact, they're, you know, they're already here at an academic level, but they're really, really close to the rest of us too. So multimodal models are a big part of this as well. Text to anything, really, uh, you know, text to speech, obviously, with synthetic voices, but text to video now is becoming more and more robust. Uh, so this is multiple forms, you know, synthetic avatars who, who are quite sophisticated, but also um, being able to generate uh, quite con- convincing B-roll imagery or, or video from from text. So you describe something in text, and it will give you four or eight seconds of of um, of B-roll, sort of just, you know showing some some video of that 
uh, of that thing that you described, and obviously the text to images. So these these kind of you know media based describe what you want and get the output. I think you know that range of things, that range of models, and the, particularly the fact that they work together. That it's not just you know here's a model, here's a model, here's a model. It's that they all work together. The language model works with the with the images. You can generate the prompts for the images from the language. You can use your language model to analyze the text that's created from the transcription all of these things work together to amplify what the you know what they can all do i think that there's a, a lot out there who have a misconception that ai is uh take the user from a to z and uh there's they're missing a lot of nuance how would you encourage new users to use and see the nuance of the tools themselves i think by far and I, I just can't emphasize this enough. By far, the, the, you know, the best way is to engage with the tools. So these tools are not like the previous generation of AI. So the previous gener- generation of AI, this last decade that I've talked about, that was pretty heavy-duty stuff. You know, you typically needed data science team, a data warehouse, the, you know, the full suite of education and training and tools, all of these sort of big, expensive, time-consuming things. These tools are not like that. These tools are, you know, they're typically, I mean, if you've played with ChatGPT, as I hope everyone has, you get a sense for how easy and accessible these tools are. If you pay a little bit of money, $20 a month for GPT+, you get some really dramatic tools, not just GPT-4, but things like Code Interpreter, which lets you kind of move into the world of analysis, uh, unstructured data, and so on and other kind of functionality plugins that do things like let you access the internet from GPT-4 or sort of do do other little jobs for you within GPT-4. All of this stuff is available for $20 a month and a few hours of playing around at an easy user interface. So there's just no excuse to not sit down and play with these these tools. And the same thing is true you know in a media context for for basically all of the rest of them too. Uh, all of these models I've described, you know, the text to video, the text to image, uh, the synthetic voices, you know, all of these, uh, th- these are all basically accessible to anyone. They're affordable with tiny subscriptions. They're, you don't need to read a manual. You just need to sit down for, you know, 30 minutes and play with the tools. They're just not complicated. And so I think there's just no substantial barrier. And, you know, the way to participate, I guess, in that world is just to engage with the tools. And I, again, I can't emphasize that enough. These are open to everybody and everybody should engage with them. So how would you see newsrooms getting their uh, staff up to speed? Well, I, I think there's some, there's a little bit of navigation to do here because, you know, most newsrooms, especially public service newsrooms are not ready to sort of implement kind of, you know, fully AI driven workflows and, and all the rest of it. There's going to be a period of time you know, the, the, many are developing guidelines right now and, and understanding what the functionality can do within their existing workflows. All of this is going to take quite a, a time to play out. So you don't want, I think, staff kind of jumping the gun kind of during that phase. But you have to prepare these organizations for this world that is coming. Um, and so finding ways to, you know, maybe this is, you know, prototyping or, you know, internal competitions or, or um, you know, some kind of internal publishing uh, you know, most organizations have a um, have an internal website, for example. These kind of things might be places where you can have your staff use and engage with, and maybe even do some limited, you know, internal publishing uh, with the tools to learn the negatives, the positives, 
the uses um, and so on, uh, so that they're ready um, as, as, as all of this develops in, in the ecosystem at large. There's some ethical implications for using AI. There's, uh, you know, the extracting of information from existing texts and articles and creating new ones, editorial, various editorial formats. Can you give your thoughts on these ethical implications? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think for a news organization, um, if, if a news organization chooses to to use the output from their existing uh, journalistic workflow, say a text article, and then reversion that using AI uh, into many other different versions, you know, audio, video, uh, whatever, uh, perhaps to serve uh, different audiences. Um, I, I, there's no ethical issues that I can see with that. There's a huge ethical issue, on the other hand, with using uh, using essentially journalism and original reporting that other um, journalists produce and scraping that or, or 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 copying that, and then you know paraphrasing it with a model, combining it with other with other articles to produce uh, some content that that you then use. And, and I think that's particularly challenging because the copyright laws and the options for enforcing Say terms and conditions around scraping content from web pages, you know the robots.txt metadata, this kind of stuff, that has not caught up with what these models can do. And so that's that I think is a short-term challenge for news organizations is how to protect their content from being scraped and paraphrased basically by large language models. I think it's a very clear ethical problem, but it's also very difficult to protect against at the moment. I, you know, this is something where new regulation might be useful. In regards to farming information, public service media organizations, should they be diligent in regards to using ChatGPT for its ability to farm information from them? Well, um, you know, when I was speaking earlier, I was really um, speaking about others, you know, third parties out there in the information ecosystem, uh, reading published content, you know, scraping it and then using that as raw material for uh, you know, for for aggregated uh, sites, I think that's a huge risk uh, for news organizations. And there's a, I think a smaller but also annoying um, uh, risk associated with the model providers training their models on the, the archives of, of publishers. But in terms of of the risks of actually putting information, you know, content into the models, there are several ways. Uh, that news organizations news organizations can protect against that. I've worked with a, a large publisher, for example, that have their own instance of GPT-4 that they can control and they can manage, um, you know, where that information that goes goes into it goes. And there are other kind of, you know, OpenAI have these tiers of contractual arrangements uh, to let um, to let media organizations control that. So I think, you know, th- there are ways around that. Like I think that this is. Uh, um, you know, maybe a temporary thing or an expense thing because these en- enterprise relationships are are quite um, uh, are quite pricey. Uh, but I don't think it's a long term challenge. Can you talk a little bit about um, your experience of integrating and onboarding some newsrooms with uh, some of this AI technology? Yeah, so I've been on quite a, as you can imagine, quite a roller coaster for the last while, um, working with a lot of different newsrooms. And I've got some kind of interesting observations that are kind of starting to emerge from those experiences. So one is, is the degree to which especially smaller, more entrepreneurial newsrooms, the speed with which they're adopting this. Um, And so this is in some cases, I think, quite dramatic. And this is essentially that, you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, people engage with these tools, get familiar with them, figure out how to put them into workflows. 
and do all that very quickly, like in weeks. And then many of these smaller news organizations are going that extra step and actually kind of building tools that that use the, for example, the OpenAI API, the, the computer interface, and build tools that let their journalists um, uh, do their work, you know, through the OpenAI or with the OpenAI uh, toolkit uh, over the API, and then maybe inter- integrate that into the content management system or whatever it happens to be. So I, I, I've been um, uh, frankly surprised at how quickly many are moving. I think there's a crop of tools that are about to appear. Uh, Google, for example, demonstrated one to large newsrooms uh, around the world uh, last month. Uh, this is a tool they call Genesis. Uh, and there are other tools. I've heard uh, Microsoft is working apparently on a similar tool. A lot of publishers are developing their own. There's one that um, is quite interesting uh, being developed by Ippen Media in uh, in Germany, for example. But I've seen news organizations as small as 50 or 60 people uh, building their own tools for this. So I think we're about to see a crop of kind of new interfaces that are that are that are intended to enable journalists to work fluidly with large language models. Now, with all of this um, AI power, we're going to see more and more content, more and more production. Do you feel that now, uh, more than ever, the public service uh, media should focus on media literacy? Yes. Um, and, and I think that is potentially kind of one of the large responsibilities of public service media in this era, this transformational era that we're all about to head into. You know, I, I think one of the challenges for societies is how do we bring everybody along into this kind of new, uh, fairly unprecedented world we're about to head into that's 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 mediated through AI. And public service media can help or can even lead or, or perhaps is the best place to lead in informing the public about that transition. I, I think in order to do that, public service media has to be kind of immersed in what's happening. This is not like reporting on self-driving cars or something from afar. This really is, uh, you know, this is what this this means as a as a day-to-day person living a day-to-day life. So, yeah, I think that's a big responsibility. There's other more kind of ways that media literacy, I, I think, is talked about here, you know, in terms of misinformation and disinformation. Um, that's important, but I think the really big one is is how do we bring everybody in our societies along on this AI transformation? Is there anything else that we should consider when having this AI discussion? I, I think a big one is um, is trying to anticipate to the degree that we can. It's obviously very hard. Um, what this looks like a little further out, um, and and what I mean by that is, you know, people I think since ChatGPT launched, or most people have have been in a kind of a learning mode. It's like, what are these tools? What can they do? You know, how much of this is hype? You know, is it useful? How do I use it? How do I learn it? All this kind of stuff, this kind of, you know, tactical, getting up to speed kind of stuff. And that's that's been useful and necessary and has actually happened quite quickly. Um, I think increasingly people generally and, and newsrooms specifically are moving into a phase where they're getting more specific. So now it's more like, well, what exact tasks can these things do? How do I fit it into the workflow? You know, how do I, you know, maybe tweak my organization to support this stuff? You know, how do I build a tool? How how do I manage my infrastructure to support this stuff? All of that is starting to become, I think, more and more of the conversation. So I think we're entering into a period, I don't know, a year, a couple of years, something like that, where it's how do I use these tools? But 
that's typically how do I use these tools in my existing workflows, producing my existing products, competing in the existing competitive environment, you know, under my existing strategy. So it's it's this kind of underlying assumption of the status quo, and then how can I apply these tools in that? And that's that's fine for now, but in my view, that's not going to last. I, I think we get to a point, maybe it's two years from now, maybe it's a year from now, maybe it's three or five years from now, where the the combined transformation enabled by especially large language models, but all these other uh, AI models as well, that changes the ecosystem, the information ecosystem fundamentally. And so the big question that I think for public service media in the longer term is, well, what is the next information ecosystem? And how does public service media fulfill its underlying kind of fundamental function in that next ecosystem? And that's obviously deeply uncertain because there's a lot that we don't understand about how this stuff is going to play out. But um, I, I think there's a lot that we can understand, um, at least in some scenario-based way, by just kind of connecting the dots from what's already happening. David, if uh, people want to follow along, contact you, or see more from you, where can they find you? Well, I, I try to stay active on uh, on X, uh, as I'm trying to call Twitter these days. My handle there is is at uh, Struct Stories. That, that's where I, I tend to post. Um, I write quite a bit on this. I, I am an academic um, I have a very small academic career in addition to my uh, product innovation career. Uh, so uh, there's some stuff on Google Scholar, uh, for example, that might be interesting. Or just uh, send me an email, um, david at structuredstories.com. This has been extremely informative and very interesting. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome, and thank you for the invitation. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and telling a friend about us. This is Laurent Fratt, producer of the podcast. The music was created by Mickey Curling, and Martin Lonesser took care of the sound. Thank you from all of us.